Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, welcome to this episode of Hormonally Yours. As a licensed healthcare practitioner working in women's health, it's important to stay abreast of the new research. In fact, our credential actually requires us to complete a certain number of hours of continuing education every year. And while yes, uh, we do learn a lot from attending medical conferences and some more formal activities like webinars, I also like to stay on top of new research as it comes out. So at least a few times a month, I'm inside PubMed, which is a scientific research hub, looking at what's new in PCOS, fertility, and hormones research. Since I'm doing this work for myself already, I wanted to share some of what I come across with you, my audience. Um, so I do plan to do these research update episodes occasionally as part of the lineup. For today's episode, I am so happy to be joined by Lauren Manneker, MS, RDN, LD, CLEC. In addition to being my dietitian bestie and someone I chat with on the daily, Lauren is a premier researcher when it comes to fertility, pregnancy, and women's health. She's the author of several books, including Fueling Male Fertility, Avoiding Allergens While Breastfeeding, and The First Time Mom's Cookbook. And she's always the first person I reach out to when I want to dork out about something that I've read. So welcome, Lauren. So great to have you. Thank you. And I am so excited for your podcast and I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Why don't you tell the audience a little about yourself if there's anything I missed? I think you covered the <laughs> gamut and thank you for that very kind intro. I mean, basically everything you said, I'm a fellow registered dietitian. I focus on women's health. The bulk of what I do is writing and researching and trying to break down the medical literature in a way that people can know what that actually means to them, right? We always want to know what's in it for me. So that's always my go-to is to try and give people little nuggets from these very complicated big studies that we read about. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, I love your work so much because 
you know, I come from a similar place having worked in medical advertising and, you know, really my training is being able to take that complicated scientific research and give you the, so what, or, you know, translate it into actual English. (laughs) I I came from, um, medical sales and marketing. So I, it's ingrained in my head. What's in it for me. That's all people care about what's in it for me. So it's great when you're working in nutrition, you know, what we're selling is fruits and veggies and seafood and just really trying to highlight what people can do to empower their health. Yeah. So, you know, I thought it would be fun for us to kind of chat about some of the articles that have come out in the last few months in the area of PCOS, fertility and hormones. And I, I do want to caveat that with, you know, a fact that makes me pretty angry, which is that, you know, although 10 to 20% of women have PCOS and, you know, even more than that have other hormonal related conditions, the amount of research funding dedicated to these conditions is incredibly small. For PCOS, it's actually 0.1% of research funding is dedicated to the condition, which just seems you know, really small compared to the vast number of women who are affected by the condition. So we get a little excited whenever we see any research in this area, but we're not often seeing those like really huge, really well-funded studies in this area. So we kind of take what we can and take these little nuggets and see what there is to incorporate. So let's get started with an article on omega-3s. I know I know you and I both love omega-3s. They are near and dear to our hearts. There is an article published in the Annals of Palliative Medicine, which is kind of a weird place to have an article about this, by Yuan et al. And it was August 2021. And for those of you who want to find the study, the PubMed ID is 34488. 386. And the article is Efficacy of Omega-3 Polyunsaturated Fatty Acids on Hormones, Oxidative Stress, and Inflammatory Parameters Among Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And if you're like me and Lauren, that systematic review and meta-analysis really picks your ears up. And just for people that don't, that aren't as into the literature, the reason why I like it, and I'm assuming you like it too, is it gives a nice snapshot of what the data says. So basically what these researchers do is they compile all the research that they can find, and they compile the results from what they've read and found, and they come up with one conclusion. So we're not basing this just on one study. We're basing this on multiple studies that they deemed to be worthy of being included in their systematic review and meta-analysis. I mean, the systematic review has to be done before the meta-analysis to review what's out there. So for people that don't want to like (laughs) read 500 studies, the meta-analysis really gives a nice picture of what the data really says with some caveats. You know, if things just sound too good to be true, research can always be skewed. So it is nice to go back and read some of the studies just to make sure, you know, what these results say and actually correlates with what, you know, whether these studies are actually well-conducted, you know, well-designed. 
But in a nutshell, these systematic reviews and meta-analyses really give us a nice idea of what does the research say so far? Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to remember, like, you can kind of cherry pick any results that you want. Like, you can find, I'm sure, a bunch of studies that show that eggs are bad. You could also find a bunch of studies that show eggs are good. So what these kind of studies do is they they filter through all of that and they give you the full picture without you having to be the one to spend hours and hours and hours going down the PubMed rabbit hole. Yeah. So let's jump in. This was a study where 314 studies were used. And ultimately, out of all of that, they only deemed 10 of those studies worthy of inclusion in this meta-analysis. And um, so it was a total of 610 patients. So, you know, it's a it's a decent-sized study, but like looking at what they were starting with and what they ended up with, it seems like a small fraction. You know, because they have their criteria of what they want to look at as well. So there are some meta-analyses with thousands and thousands of patients. So 610 is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, you know, when it jump in and talk about the results, because I think, you know, they're pretty impressive. Um, mm-hmm. The results showed that people with PCOS who were taking omega-3 fatty acid supplements, so fish oil supplements, had showed a reduction in C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. They showed a reduction in luteinizing hormone, which is LH, which is often high with PCOS because it's your brain basically telling your ovaries to ovulate. And when they don't ovulate, that LH keeps getting higher and higher and higher as your brain is like literally screaming at your ovaries to make that happen. Lower total testosterone with omega-3s and an increase in a measure they call total antioxidant capacity. So antioxidants, you know, we always have like damage going on in our body from, you know, normal metabolic processes, but also from toxin exposure and just all of the things that our bodies have to deal with. And what protects us are these antioxidants, which come in and clean up the damage. So this was showing taking omega-3s actually increased the ability for your body to clean up the damage, which is a great measure. There was a decrease in, uh, or no, it was an increase, increase in sex hormone binding globulin, which I always tell people it, it does exactly what it sounds like. It binds on to sex hormones. So we're talking about estrogen, progesterone, testosterone combined onto thyroid uh, hormones as well. So an increase in sex hormone binding globulin is likely to decrease free testosterone because there's going to be more bound up and less free to roam around and cause problems. Um, And I think that was it for the positive It didn't show any effects on glutathione, which is our master antioxidant, Um, didn't show any effects on DHEAS, which is an androgen that is produced by the adrenal glands, didn't show any effect on free androgen index, which is like how many of those androgens are floating around free to cause symptoms. Um, and it didn't show any impact on, on FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, which I, I wouldn't have ex- 
expected it to show, you know, a change on that. So, you know, I, I think it was, it was a pretty interesting study. It showed some improvements in measures that are important in PCOS. I'm not sure what the, the dosing was across the studies. It probably varied across Very. the studies. I generally do see pretty good results with omega-3 fish oil supplementation in PCOS, although I tend to go to it more for its effects on lowering CRP and increasing HDL, which is that good cholesterol, rather than thinking about, you know, its potential effects on androgens. So this is, you know, maybe broadening my view of fish oil a little bit in this area. You know, definitely not the first thing I think of when it comes to androgens, but, you know, to me, it sounds pretty promising. Mm -hmm. I think one key takeaway of this is big picture, we can say fish oil has a positive effect on certain measures, right? So when people say take omega-3s for hormone health, we're seeing right here which which hormones, because Mm -hmm. some may be affected and some it has absolutely no effect on. So, you know, that's where I think that targeted approach needs to come in and why there is no one size fits all for every single human being in America when it comes to hormone health. You know, we see it right here that some measurements had completely no fluctuation while others, it showed a positive. So I was going to say, and I I know you, you see this as well, and it's your approach as well as mine to always focus on foods first, you know, and getting the nutrients that we need from foods. But the bottom line is most people don't eat enough fish. A lot of people aren't willing to change their diets to eat enough fish. Um, There may be, you know, issues with access. I know you and I both live near the coast where fish is abundant. And I feel very lucky that fish is and seafood is very affordable where I live. Um, you know, lobster is $5.99 a pound, which is, you know, about a quarter of the cost of wild salmon from Alaska. So, you know, I definitely incorporate a lot of fish. And I have seen, because I do tend to test omega-3 and omega-6 levels in my patients. And I I see omega-3 deficiencies widely. You know, pretty much every person I have ever tested is deficient in omega-3s. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's what's interesting about omega-3s and I mean, really when it comes to more not, I mean, it is PCOS related things like heart health Mm -hmm. um, and even just mortality, early death. The data is conflicting when it comes to the effects of omega-3 supplements versus actually eating fish, which is challenging because what you're saying, not everybody is eating fish, but especially the lower mercury fish, things like salmon, Blanking on others, albacore tuna, not albacore tuna, skipjack tuna. Wait, (laughs) yes. You know, you're getting the omega threes. You're also getting fish has antioxidants in there. You know, when you're seeing that red pink color, those are antioxidants. You're getting antioxidants. You're getting selenium. You are getting so many other nutrients that work together in your body. So it would be an interesting study to evaluate these same outcomes in people with PCOS if they ate fish twice a week to see if it would be even better outcomes. Just because you are, if you can, the outcomes are so much better according to the study 
and I mean, according to the data, and you're just getting so much more in there other than just the omega-3 fatty acids. Absolutely. And, you know, I am always uh, for people who don't eat fish, they're allergic, or maybe they're vegan, and they're not able to incorporate fish. You know, I do want to note that the omega-3 fatty acids that are in plant foods are different, and they're not as well used by our bodies. And so really, the only plant source of DHA, which is that active omega-3 is algae supplements. So, you know, that's something I generally will recommend someone incorporate if they can't or don't eat fish or won't eat fish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we literally cannot eat enough walnuts to make enough DHA. No, your body won't do it. Yeah. And nothing against walnuts. We love our walnuts. You know, I love my walnuts. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that accent just came from. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When it comes to the omega, the specific omega-3 that you and I tend to lean on, mm-hmm. the foods like the walnuts are not going to cut it. Exactly. So I would say bottom line, eat more fish. <laughs> you know? more All right. fish. And you know, if you're already taking an omega-3 supplement, keep going. You know, yeah. if you're open to taking one, I don't see it being a terrible idea, but I wouldn't like die over it. Yeah. I'm funny with it. Like I, I do love omega-3 supplements. Uh, the way I take them is on days I don't eat fish. <laughs> I like that. It's like, oh, if I'm having a burger tonight, like let me pop up a fish oil to go yeah. with it. That's you're supplementing your diet. Balance it out a little bit. Exactly. If I didn't have tuna for lunch and I'm having a burger for dinner, like let's just make sure I'm checking that box today. All right, let's move on to the next study. This one is Berberine improves the symptoms of DHEA induced PCOS rats by regulating gut microbiota and metabolites. Um, And this one's by Shen et al. And it's in the Journal of Gynecologic and Obstetric Investigation and was published in August 2021. And for those of you who want to look it up, the PubMed ID is 34515131. The objective of this study was to investigate the effects of berberine on PCOS with insulin resistance. So what they did was they took a bunch of rats and they gave them a bunch of DHEA to induce PCOS. Remember DHEA is that androgen that our adrenal snake. And so they basically gave the rats PCOS and then they fed them berberine and they looked at what happened to their gut microbiome. So our gut microbiome is really composed of all of the bacteria and viruses and pathogens and parasites and fungus and all of the things that live inside of us, um, which sounds really gross, but they do. It does really good things for us when our gut microbiome is healthy. The study, I don't think it really matters, but 42 rats, Sprague Dolly rats were studied. And then they measured basically what's in their poop. And so they did see some changes in the number and type of bacteria that was present in their gut microbiome. I always want to say Fermicutes, like I always want to call them Fermicutes. I think it's Fermicutes and 
bacteria, bacteriodetes, you know, they definitely increased. There are a whole bunch of other bacteria that they looked at. They actually like came out and said, you know, this, this was a small number of rats that we looked at. Obviously we would have to confirm this in humans. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, berberine really is used for, for two things really. Um, and I do use it for two things in my practice. The first, and you know, what's, what's most commonly associated with PCOS is how effective it is at lowering insulin levels. So when you've got insulin, a severe case of insulin resistance, it can be worth looking at berberine. However, I caveat that, that I, I use berberine like with extreme caution only in certain populations. Like it's definitely not something that I feel comfortable recommending across the board for everyone with PCOS. The second real, you know, kind of known effect or what I know berberine for is as an antimicrobial. So it's an herbal antimicrobial that can be helpful in gut microbiome imbalances. It can help kind of kill some of the bad guys that may be in there based on what's going on. But I think when I'm using berberine for gut purposes, I'm generally using it in combination with other herbal antimicrobials. So I'm not surprised they they saw these results with berberine in PCOS rats, you know, but this is an animal study. So we really can't extrapolate anything about it to humans. And I do, you know, want to reiterate that berberine is absolutely not for everyone. You know, it really has to be taken case by case. And I, I don't recommend doing it if you're not doing it under the care of a healthcare practitioner. And, and I think the fact that this has been conducted on rats is something that we need to be aware of when you are getting your information off of the internet. You know, I've seen a lot of supplement companies say that their supplements are evidence-based, but then when you click on the studies that they're using, they're animal studies. And animal studies are a great start. You know, we, we learn a lot from them on where we want to go when we want to take it a step further and run these clinical trials on humans. But we are not just big rats. Rats and humans have different anatomies. We there's we break down certain nutrients in a different way than rats do. So we can't just say this worked for rats, so this will work for humans. In this case, I wouldn't be surprised if the results are similar. But um, I do think that people should just take caution in hearing some great results from any study. And then if they see that it was conducted on any animal, they definitely need to take it with a grain of salt. And then when it comes to the microbiome too, you know, unfortunately, there's no magic bullet. You know, this can certainly help, but you also have to give your body the, we call them good bugs, right? The bacteria that offer a benefit and can colonize the gut and do all the great things that we've heard of over and over again, support the immune system, you know, support our gut health. I mean, so many things. So you can't just take this and then smoke your cigarettes and eat potato chips every day and expect your gut microbiome to like be thriving and keep you alive until you're 120 years old. So, you know, take away from this study, I think we'll see. So at this point, really nothing. We really, I'm not taking anything away from this study. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I certainly hope that my lifestyle is different than a rat in a box. I mean, yeah. although I think over the last year or so, it may feel, may feel a little bit like I am just a rat in a box, but we won't, we won't go there. I also was thinking it's kind of interesting, you know, especially because we don't, we don't fully understand what causes PCOS in humans. And we, we know, you know, it's multifactorial and it's probably a combination of, you know, genetic variants and environmental triggers and, you know, the insulin resistance itself. So I, I feel like it's a pretty big leap that they were like, let's just take DHEA and give these mice PCOS. It's like, no, you're giving them high DHEA. You're not necessarily giving them PCOS as the complicated metabolic hormonal disorder that we know it to be. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, like I feel like that these researchers are just like, oh yeah, we know what we're doing. Well, I feel like they're, they're oversimplifying PCOS. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Like you can't just like give people PCOS or, or <laughs> you know, rats, whatever. Like if it's so easy to like give someone PCOS and it should be so easy to reverse PCOS, but it doesn't work like that, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Why, why aren't we running these studies? Well, I don't know why we're publishing small studies on rats that the conclusion is that this was too small to say anything. Yeah. Let's just say publishing this. Let's just say this study is, is basically utterly useless. Studies rat poop. Rat poop. There was a study a couple of years back where they gave uh, rats fecal transplants from women with PCOS, and the rats developed symptoms of PCOS. I'm picturing rats with like Mm -hmm. acne and hair loss, but like they like got irregular cycles and polycystic ovaries just from the microbiomes of women with PCOS. That is interesting. Yeah, kind of funny. Okay, so this one I'm really excited to talk about because of the myth that you shouldn't eat dairy when you have PCOS. So this was a study on whey protein. It was whey protein supplementation improves glycemic response and may reduce non-alcoholic fatty liver disease related biomarkers in women with polycystic ovary syndrome. The authors are Zumbro et al. It was published in Nutrients. Uh, July, 2021. And the PubMed ID is 343-71959. So, you know, we know that there's an increased risk for type two diabetes and insulin resistance and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from PCOS. So these researchers hypothesized that giving women with PCOS uh, 35 grams of whey protein a day would improve insulin sensitivity and you know how well their bodies handle glucose. It was a seven-day study. It did show, uh, you know, there's really no change in liver enzymes, which are ALT and AST. But it did show a decrease in cholesterol by 13% in seven days, which seems pretty significant and really not even really sure what this is. HAPG2 cells treated with plasma from participants before and after whey 
decreased lipid accumulation. Okay. So it's a Petri dish study. So they, they took these liver cells and they treated them with plasma, which is the liquid part of our blood from before and after the way. And after the way, the fatty cells decreased. So in a Petri dish, they showed less fat <laughs> accumulation in liver cells. You know, uh, huge problems with this study when I was like really kind of digging into it. This is the only study where the whole, the whole study is available for free to read if you don't have access to an academic library or something like that. So this whole study is available. You know, they started with 75 people and only 29 completed the study. Apparently four dropped out because they didn't really tolerate. They had um, digestive symptoms from the beverage that they used for the oral glucose tolerance test. And if you've ever had to do that, you know, it's just like a gross glucose beverage that they feed you. And then 42 people dropped out due to, you know, quote unquote, scheduling conflicts. <laughs> it's like, that's really, you know, really kind of weird that like more than half of people who signed up for a study were like, yeah, no, I can't do it anymore. So like what they actually ended up with was 14 people with PCOS and the rest were age matched controls, but not, and this is important, not weight matched or BMI matched controls. They were just matched for age. So they gave them 35 grams of whey protein before lunch on the seven days of the study. And I think, you know, I took a look at what they were eating. Their baseline um, reported intake before the study. And the women with PCOS were eating about 1,700 calories a day and only 57 grams of protein before the study a day, 57 a day. So that's like a red flag for me. <laughs> um, what are what are your thoughts around some of this? I mean, I think for the way a lot of busy women eat, you know, it's not ideal, but I believe it. You know, I mean, a lot of the foods that we eat, we're on the go when we're on the go are typically lower in protein. Yeah, I think, I think so too. I mean, I definitely recommend a higher protein diet for PCOS, you know, for a number of reasons It can help balance blood sugar. It helps with satiety. It doesn't spike insulin very much. There's many, you know, to maintain um, lean muscle mass while we're uh, women are focused on losing weight. So there's definite reasons to increase protein. So, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that merely adding 35 grams of protein of any kind to their diet a day would show some benefits. You know, obviously, like, what are you going to show in seven days? Like, there's just like, not a lot that, that, you know, definitely, even if there was a short-term change, it's like, it's not indicative of a sustainable long-term chain or like, you know, do this and it stays fixed, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Apparently they're working on a, a 40 day study. You know, I do think it's, it's interesting, you know, especially when there's such a narrative or against incorporating dairy with PCOS, but I don't know. I don't know that there's anything really in here that is, action worthy, let's say. No, but you know, I, I'm not seeing any downside to incorporating whey protein in the diet. And, 
you know, this isn't the first study to at least propose the idea of potential benefits of including whey protein in the diet. And I mean, there's a lot out there that shows that whey protein can help with satiety and appetite, which I guess is kind of satiety, (laughs) you know, weight management. So, you know, it's something to consider. I mean, I've read some studies showing that whey protein can decrease like post-meal blood sugars. So, you know, maybe not specific to the PCOS community, but for people that are trying to get a handle on their cravings or they're trying to get a handle on their blood sugars, I don't see a downside unless I'm missing something. No, that's that's true. And, you know, I'm pro protein, you know, adding yeah. protein, however, however it works for you. You know, when I'm thinking of whey protein and, and studies around it, I'm typically thinking more in the sports nutrition realm and, you know, the, the muscle growth uh, after supplementation from whey protein. Um, I'm not aware of, I'm, I mean, I've never really done the digging to see if there are other studies uh, that that do show an impact of whey protein on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which, you know, I don't if, know if, if there is one in a more general population, then maybe what this study is trying to show is similar effects in a PCOS population. I don't know. I, I do. I love, I love whey for, you know, when I'm recommending protein powders to people, I'm, I'm generally, generally recommending single ingredient protein powders because you know, you don't need a multivitamin. You don't need a meal replacement. What you're adding protein powder for is to add protein to foods that are naturally lower in protein. And so, you know, whey is definitely one option. You know, there are other options out there as well. I don't definitely don't think it's the be all and end all. And if you can't eat whey, it's not a big deal. You know, protein powders like pea are, are pretty nutritionally similar. And now they have cricket, which I have not explored yet, but apparently that's becoming very big now. I, ha- you know what? I tried. I tried a bar that had crickets in it, but I, I haven't tried the protein powder. I, I don't know. I guess I'm only mildly creeped out by it. I'm not like hugely grossed out by it. I just picture it like crunchy. Crickets remind me of shrimp, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm peeling the shrimp. I'm not eating the exoskeleton of the shrimp. And I feel like with the cricket, you're eating like the exoskeleton too. I'm making that up. I really don't know, but that gives me the, because like, how are you going to get the cricket? I just feel like I've made it this long without (laughs) eating it and I'm fine. People love it. And they say it's a high quality source of protein. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going on this cricket protein (laughs) rabbit hole. It's another option out there for you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if, if you are eating the whole exoskeleton, it's it's very sustainable because yeah, you, you're probably getting a lot of nutrients in there. And there's literally no food waste, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> eat the whole thing. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not gonna yuck your yum if you're if you're a cricket fan. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. 
If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Okay, let's move on to this other study that I found, PCOS as an independent risk factor for miscarriage. And the article is the risk of subsequent miscarriage in pregnant women with prior polycystic ovarian syndrome, a nationwide population-based study. Uh, It's by Pan et al. in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, published in August 2021, and the PubMed ID is 34444016. And so what they did was they used a nationwide database, uh, which was uh, in Taiwan, and it was people who had health insurance in Taiwan. And so they looked at this population between 1998 and 2012, which included a million citizens. So like, this is like a really big, you know, we're talking about 42 people isn't really much. Well, here's a million. So they looked at, you know, people who had a diagnosis of PCOS prior to getting pregnant and then what the effects on miscarriage rate were. They extrapolated the number of people in this database who had PCOS um, and they ended up with 1,926, which seems small out of a million, but these are ones that they had. Um, it was ICD-9 codes at the time. We've we've moved on to ICD-10 codes, but ICD-9 is a diagnosis code. So they had a, a diagnosis of PCOS, and then they matched them with four non-PCOS controls, and then they looked at you know, rates of miscarriage. So what they found was the incidence of miscarriage in the people who were diagnosed with PCOS was much, much higher. It was 33.8% compared to people without PCOS, where it was 4.09%. And, you know, for me, looking at those numbers, it's like, we kind of expect, or, you know, it's commonly thought that one in four clinical pregnancies where like, you know, you are pregnant ends in miscarriage. So, you know, that's more like 25%. So it's definitely a little higher than that. I think I find it really surprising that the people who were, who did not have PCOS, only 4% had miscarriages. That seems really skewed to me. And then, you know, sort of as a secondary finding from this study, when they, you know, segmented the people with PCOS, People with PCOS who took metformin while they were pregnant had a lower 
incidence of miscarriage compared to the people with PCOS who did not take metformin. So, you know, based on the results of this study, they concluded that a pre-pregnancy diagnosis of PCOS is an independent and significant risk factor for subsequent miscarriage. What do you think? Well, I, I think that this really highlights that having a diagnosis of PCOS does put you at a higher risk of unfortunately experiencing um, miscarriage. Granted, this was done on women, I mean, focused on women in Taiwan and, you know, people live different lifestyles in different areas of the world. But just from what I've seen and from what you've seen, yes, people who have a diagnosis of PCOS do tend to be at a higher risk. And this is evidence of that, that people can take this knowledge and get the support they need proactively. You know, unfortunately, most cases of miscarriage are due to chromosomal abnormalities and nothing anyone did. You didn't like eat a piece of sushi and cause a miscarriage or, you know, whatever. It's something that's completely out of your control. But getting some extra support certainly isn't going to hurt anything. I don't want people walking away from this totally panicked that they are going to experience a miscarriage if they happen to have a diagnosis of PCOS, because that's certainly not the case, but it is just something to be aware of and something that you can um, try and, you know, just get the information you need and take care of yourself and just early management and really trying to do what your body needs you to do. Yeah, I agree. You know, and obviously I work with thousands of women with PCOS and I see, you know, I do see miscarriage, but I see miscarriage in my fertility clients who don't have PCOS. And, you know, vast majority of the time, my clients who do have miscarriages with PCOS go on to have a subsequent healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby, you know, often within months of that miscarriage. So, you know, I, I tend to, you know, we know there are higher risks for certain things during pregnancy with PCOS. I, I tend to be, you know, a little more concerned with things like gestational diabetes and high blood pressure you know, and like you said, miscarriage, it's so, it's so rare that we actually even find out what the cause was, you know, um, so many of the times we're not able to even find out if it was a chromosomal abnormality. Um, you know, we just, we just don't know. And so all we can, we really, you know, this is the hardest part for women, but we, we really don't have control. And so all we can all we can do is control the things we can control, which is, you know, nourishing our bodies, getting that prenatal care, um, moving our bodies, working on stress reduction, getting in enough sleep. You know, it's, it's easy to get very doom and gloom when you're looking at statistics like this around PCOS, but you know, you never, you never know what, what the case is going to be for you and your pregnancy or your specific pregnancy that you're experiencing. So, you know, and I, I agree also that, uh, you know, we learn when we're interpreting research that a study in one 
area of the world really can't be extrapolated to another area of the world, even if, you know, there are some larger studies that might have multifocal, you know, multiple locations where they're looking at things, but, you know, there's no way to control for things like lifestyle and diet and, you know, environmental exposure. It's just like so many things are different there than they are where you are. (laughs) So we can't, can't jump to any conclusions. Yeah. I think it's interesting, but you know, there's no, there's really no, so what (laughs) other than like, you just got to keep handling the things you can control. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Get another like site specific study here. So this one is on, oh God, please don't make me say this. Perfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, um, PFAS. So the author is Hammerstrand et al., Environment International from December 2021. And I was writing that and I was like, wait, what? Um, but apparently it was it was uh, published uh, digitally um, August 2021. So the print version will come out in December. Um, PubMed ID 3439198. Um, and this was a really interesting study, like really interesting because you know, we know PFAS is an endocrine disruptor. It's a chemical compound that can mimic or interfere with our body's hormones. And we are aware of this, um, you know, been aware of this for a long time. Um, And what happened was in Sweden, there was like an incident at an airfield and the firefighters like used the, um, you know, the fluid, the foam, the firefighting fluid to put out a fire at an airfield and it seeped into the water. And so they knew that this happened. So they knew that the water in this area was like way off the charts, high for PFAS. And what they did in this study was they looked at all the women who lived in that area and then they looked at the medical records and to determine how many of them had hormone-related conditions. And the conditions they looked at were PCOS, uterine leiomyoma, which is uterine fibroids, and endometriosis. And what they found was that the people who had been exposed to PFAS in their water did have a higher incidence of PCOS and fibroids, but not endometriosis, which I think was kind of interesting. So it's like sort of a really like unique uh, situation where it's not something you could replicate in another area. There was like a known exposure and they just kind of were like, oh, let's see what happens. You know, it's kind of like, like nuclear, you know, the effect of nuclear waste fallout or something, Um, you know, looking back and seeing like the incidence of increased thyroid cancer and things like that. Yeah. What do you think about this study? I think it's interesting. I mean, really, I don't, we know that exposure to certain contaminants is not good to put to put it very simply so it's definitely a relatable situation and kind of created a place for us to learn from and i mean i guess the key takeaway again is just awareness that things that we put in our body and expose our body to can play a role on our 
hormone health. Yeah, you know, um, obviously this is not a study that we can we can replicate and we, we can't really <laughs> extrapolate the results to other locations or, or other situations. They also think, you know, they were looking in particular at PFAS, but not total exposure to all endocrine disruptors, which we know we're exposed to daily, you know, in our products and our water and our food and the air that we breathe. And, you know, it's, I, I think they weren't looking at total endocrine disruptor load. They were just looking at this one measurement in water. And I think that's, you know, when I'm counseling people around exposure to environmental toxins, you know, it's always like, you know, there's no such thing as a a toxin-free life or a chemical-free life. We just, you know, perfection is not the goal. Definitely filtering your water, if that's something that is available to you, is something I recommend. I actually use like you know, we haven't gotten to the point. I, I do plan to eventually put in like a whole house filter, but for now we just use a zero water filter, which is like $30 on Amazon. And what I like about it, it comes with a little um, device, like a little doohickey that you stick in your water and it tells you how many dissolved particles per million are in your water. And it's like, you know, before filtering, it's like 300 and something. And then after it's like three. So I'm like, I don't know what it's filtering out, but it's definitely getting rid of stuff, <laughs> which makes makes me feel better. But you know, you really have to consider the the entire environmental toxin load, um, and you know, start small and focus on the things that make the most difference. Which you know, in my opinion, are things that we eat or things that go on our skin and get absorbed, you know? I think one of the easiest things people can do is swap out their plastic food containers to glass. I mean, it is one investment. First of all, forget about hormone health. The plastic containers stain, which is very annoying, and you have to throw them out and go through. They don't last as long. So just really from an economical standpoint, the glass is great. You know, it doesn't stain if you put some tomato sauce in there. But also, it's really incredible how the simple act of putting hot food in a plastic container can impact your hormonal health, especially when you're comparing it to that of glass. I mean, it's no extra steps on your part. It's you're not sacrificing anything and you don't want to eat plastic. I mean, you're basically allowing plastic to enter your food, which is not a good idea. I got, um, I think it's five glass meal prep containers. Um, I'm a good wife. I pack, I pack hubby's lunch for school. And so, um, I got him those for school and then, you know, invested in a set of those like anchor hawking multi-sized bowls, um, for leftovers and stuff like that. And then I liked those and I, you know, got another set. I always tell people like, you know, when you've got those family members who are like, what do you want for Christmas this year? What do you want for the holidays this year? And you can never think of anything to tell them like, 
tell them that stuff. Like, get me a nice glass water bottle, get yeah. me a nice set of glass uh, containers, which is all well and good till hubby leaves uh, three of the containers at school. And then no. <laughs> have to, have to, I'm like, it's, it's your fault. You're eating your salad out of plastic this week, you know? Well, yeah, he'll learn his lesson. He will learn. Okay. One last study that I wanted to talk about, cause it's, it's kind of fun and it's, you know, we already kind of touched on it a little bit. Combination therapy of curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric and fecal microbiota transplant, potential treatment of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this one is Corey et al, a medical hypotheses uh, journal. Take note of that because that's important. Um, September 2021 and PubMed ID is 343-322-09. So basically, like this is just sort of, there's an abstract. They're talking about, you know, gut dysbiosis being one of the primary underlying root causes of PCOS, which, you know, first, again, I don't know that we know that that's the underlying root cause, it's a factor. So they were saying restoration of eubiosis, which would U equals good. So that would be like a good, normal, healthy microbiome was considered as a plausible way to treat PCOS. Um, Bacteriotherapeutics. So those are, you know, um, substances that can have a beneficial effect on bacteria, uh, like probiotics, symbiotics, symbiotics are probiotics plus prebiotics. Um, probiotics are live active cultures. Um, so live bacteria prebiotics are like a special type of fiber that feed the good bacteria. So, you know, when you put them together, you're, you're putting the good bacteria in and you're giving them food to eat so that they hopefully stick around a little bit. Um, and even fecal microbiota transplant have shown considerable effectiveness in PCOS. And so uh, fecal microbiota transplant is uh, kind of exactly what, what it sounds like. Lauren, you want to chime in and talk a little bit about what I it is? I would love to. So people with well-balanced, healthy gut microbiota will donate their stool. They'll give stool samples and they'll liquid, not they, professionals, you don't do this in your home. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but you don't, you don't want to. Professional people, I'm sure they have a name, liquefy it, and then they will transplant it, just like you transplant a healthy liver into a person's, the recipient's body. You are transplanting this stool with the great balance of bacteria into another person's colon. And so you're basically taking, instead of like taking probiotics and prebiotics through your diet, hoping that it'll colonize your gut, colonize your colon, do what it has to do. You're literally taking the bacteria that you want in the colon and putting it in the colon. And then from there, the bacteria colonizes and it just helps the recipient have a more balanced and healthy gut microbiota. So you're taking healthy, just like any other transplant. Do they do eye transplants? I keep thinking of liver. Let's say kidney, right? You take a healthy kidney, give it to the recipient. The recipient then has the healthy kidney. 
I'm surprised you didn't say uterus transplant because that was on this week's episode of Grey's Anatomy that Addison Montgomery was performing. I still haven't seen the end of that episode. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty impressive. I was actually surprised I learned something, you know, um, sometimes I learn things from Grey's Anatomy. Sometimes I make fun of, of the science on Grey's Anatomy. But I didn't know when they do do a uterus, this total side note here, but I didn't know when they do do a uterus transplant. Um, they really only do it until the woman is you know, completed having children. So once she has the number of children that she desires, then they re-remove the uterus because of the risks of being on immunosuppressive drugs for so long. I didn't know that either. I know. Usually I'm making fun of, of the- they giving the transplant to someone that wanted babies? Yeah. Yeah. So they're giving it to someone who wants babies, but only until- they've had all the babies they want. So let's say someone, you know, wants two babies. Once they've had that second baby, they take the uterus back out and uh, uh, immunosuppressive drugs. Yeah. uh, uh, And a a fantastic dresser. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Shonda Rhimes for, you know, teaching me that. Um, so yeah, I you know, I was thinking back to I seem to remember like maybe might have been in like the mid 2000s, like 2010-ish where I had a friend in grad school who was donating his poop. Mm-hmm. Like I think like he was getting paid. Yeah. It was a lot. It was like like $600, you know, once a week to mm-hmm. bring his poop to a site in Boston mm-hmm. where they would use it, I assume for purposes like this, where they're taking that good, you know, healthy gut environment and transplanting it to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably what they were doing. So I find it really interesting in this little write-up, they basically are saying that you know, out of all of the options out there, um, the fecal, fecal microbiota transplant is considered to be the most holistic as it encompasses, oh. because, you know, sort of like when you eat fish and you get all of the benefits of fish and not just the omega-3s, you're getting all of the things in poop, not just the bacteria. So you're getting the virome, fungome, archaeome, and even parasitome, while both probiotics and symbiotics are mainly made up of or support bacteria. So it's, it's a more holistic approach to gut health. So they, they obviously say like, you know, you do this once and you know, it's, it's effective, but it, you know, we don't really know how long the benefits last or if you have to do it again and again. And I, you know, I do know, you know, what fecal microbiota transplant is mostly used for, I think was first used for was C. diff um, yeah. infection, mm-hmm. which is, it's a, um, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria that is really widespread in hospital environments and it spreads really, really easily. So there's all sorts of C. diff protocols when you enter a room of a patient with C. diff, but it's still like, you know, doesn't really, like you could wash your hands a thousand times a day and it still can, you know, make its way through a hospital floor pretty quickly. Hard to get rid of. 
Yeah. So I was, I was confused at first when I was like, why would they give curcumin along with the fecal microbiota transplant? You know, I tend to think of curcumin and turmeric more for its anti-inflammatory properties, but you know, much like berberine, it also does have an effect on the gut microbiome. So it sounds like what they're trying to do is to figure out a way to get that fecal microbiota transplant to last as long as possible. And so they're hypothesizing that if you give curcumin after the transplant, it will help it stick longer. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, you know, sort of reading this paper and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. and realized, you know, once I was about three quarters of the way through, it's like, it's not actually a study. <laughs> um, so remember back to the title of this journal, which is Medical Hypotheses. Um, so they're really just like, this is just a paper where they're proposing this as a hypothesis, basically that someone else can study. Right. I will say there are other studies showing interactions between the gut microbiota and um, turmeric supplementation. So, you know, this hypothesis, you know, isn't coming out of left field, but yeah, they're kind of like, this is cool. Someone else can do it and let us know if it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like tag your it. Yeah. Well, anyway, so our takeaway for this is until like we have definitive evidence that this works, like don't go running out get, to get a fecal transplant. I personally, um, I'm a big fan of taking turmeric, especially when you're taking turmeric with black pepper for many reasons. So if you're already taking it, like more power to you, you know, I hear a lot of people tell me they don't take it in supplement, but they add it to their food. Mm -hmm. You're probably not adding enough to your food. To, it's great. And it's a great flavor and there's nothing wrong with that, but usually you need to take it in such a high dose that you're probably not eating enough. You may, I don't know. Everyone's different, right? But if you're like sprinkling some on your rice or your chicken, it's it's not enough to have those health benefits. So, but you know, if you're open to taking it, I I take it. I love it. Yeah, I, you know, no financial relationship with this brand, but I'm a huge fan of the Gaia curcumin products. Um, they're, I take. Yeah, they're liquid phytocaps. And, um, you know, they're the only one that I've found that doesn't trigger heartburn. Um, and I don't know if it's because it's liquid or what they're, they're cool looking too. They're like a really dark green, almost black little capsule. Um, and I love Gaia because they're like a certified B Corp and all the all the good things that we love, American grown herbs, things like that. And they're based in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh. And I did a virtual tour of their farm, I guess. And it is like the most beautiful place you have ever seen. Yeah, I've heard. I mean, they they often do, they used to do in-person tours. Um, definitely, you know, would love to see how that works now that I have my own garden and like you know, want to start growing some more medicinal things. Um, all right. So let's wrap up and let's just do like a, a summary. So 
Out of all of the studies we talked about, um, what do you think is the most promising or the most likely to have an impact on how we treat patients clinically? I think the, the two things that I am taking away from this is omega-3s mm-hmm. may be helpful. And just the sheer fact that so many people are studying the gut microbiota and how it relates to PCOS. And then all the back information that they're sharing as to why they chose to focus on the gut microbiota leads me to understand how impactful a healthy gut microbiota can be for managing PCOS. So even though the results of these studies that we read aren't completely overwhelming, there is some meat to the theory. Yeah, I definitely see it a little more as like kind of confirming the things that I'm already doing based on, you know, previous research that has informed, you know, my current protocols. There's nothing really in here that's making me want to like completely overhaul my protocols, but it's just like, okay, cool. Maybe we'll get more research on the gut stuff down the line, which, yeah you know, more specific research on, on the gut stuff. Cause we know how to support a healthy gut microbiome. Um, but the more specifics as it relates to PCOS, uh, will be cool. Um, but you know, with the gut microbiota health, I do think people need to remember it's just, it's not as simple as like taking a probiotic supplement and calling it a day. It's your whole lifestyle. It's stress. It's sleep. I mean, it sounds like we're just pushing stress and sleep for everything, but it is true. It can play a role. You also need to feed your gut the healthy prebiotic fibers. So, um, you know, it has, if you're going to focus on one thing, that's a good place to start. I think one last quick question for you, um, you know, just cause I, I respect your opinion so much, um, is what are you looking for? Like, do you have any tips for people when they are looking at the research? You kind of mentioned before about like, you know, articles on the internet where they maybe pull out a factoid or two, but then you go back and you look at the research to determine how valid that point is. Can you, can you mention like, what are some of those top line things that you're looking at when you're evaluating the quality of research? Yeah. Well, you know, some studies, it just isn't possible to make it as high quality as we would hope for it to be um, for many reasons, including ethics, you know, but generally speaking, I like to see clinical trials. So as interesting as it is to look at observational studies, so we're looking back at what happened when people maybe ate XYZ and then what happened? You know, we're looking at those relationships, which are great to know, but we don't really know whether the food or the nutrient that we're focusing on is truly having that impact versus a clinical trial where you're starting with two groups, one say getting omega-3s, one's not getting omega-3s, neither knows what they're getting. They're blind, you know, they're blinded by the intervention. We have enough people in the study. It's randomized. Things like that really are the most impactful. But when it comes to women's health, we definitely work with 
what we have. Animal studies, I will never give someone advice on what they should do based on animal studies. So if someone's looking at like a supplement brand and they list all the studies that they've used, I really encourage them to click on the study. And even in the title, it will say if it's an animal study. Or you can breeze through the abstract and just see if it was a study done on four people. If there's a study done on four people, it's not strong enough for you to really draw a strong conclusion. So those are things that I really think people need to understand. I mean, I can paint a picture of whatever you want me to paint a picture of. If you want me to hate walnuts, I'm sure I could find things that can, studies that can paint a picture that walnuts are like the devil. You know, so if you're selling a supplement, you want to show whatever's going to sell your product. So I think people really need to be, I completely went off another rail with this, went on my soapbox, but (laughs) you're, you're stuck listening to me. So you have to listen to my soapbox that that's really what I encourage people to, to do. Yeah. I think, I I think four things. I think too, with studies, it's, you know, important. The general public doesn't often realize that correlation does not equal causation. You know, we can say there's a link and there may be a link based on what we've looked at, but we can't definitively say doing X causes Y. And Um, the thing is, you know, there are a lot of things that go into our health. You know, we're not eating food in a vacuum. You know, let's let's use walnuts again. You know, you have a lot of these studies on walnuts. Mm -hmm. With these clinical trials, you could control what everyone else is doing. With these observational studies, we don't know if people ate walnuts and fish three times a week, or they ate walnuts and fast food five times a week. So we're not just eating a single food that we're studying, which makes it really hard to draw definitive conclusions. Yeah. One one other thing I just want to mention that I always look for, I pretty much look at it first before I even read the study. I scroll all the way down and I look at the disclosures. Um, So for example, when we were talking about that way study today, if that way study, one of the, the key researchers had been employed by a manufacturer of whey protein, that would make me view the data in that study, you know, with a little bit more of a skeptical eye, you know, whereas that was not the case in the, in this way study, nobody had any financial disclosures to um, disclose uh, regarding whey, but it is always important to look at who's sponsoring this study? You know, I could go down a whole side tangent about why I don't recommend a a specific uh, supplement in PCOS that other people widely recommend. Uh, But but look at the disclosures of maybe some of the studies that have been published out there and and you you can figure it out. Um, you know, really stay skeptical friends. Like that's really my, my main tip when it comes to reading research. So Lauren, let's tell people where they can find you. Oh, I am at on Instagram, Lauren loves nutrition. And if they want to check out my male fertility book, it's called fueling male fertility. For those who are trying to conceive and their healthcare providers gave no tips to their male partner, this is that substitute that everyone needs. And you could usually find me commenting on Melissa's posts and um, trolling her for telling people that they can eat dairy and gluten. (laughs) Lauren, definitely. 
you definitely confused people in my in my comment section where they're like, who is this Lauren person and why is she so mean to you? I'm like, she's you. joking. She's joking. <laughs> so thank you so, so much for joining me. I'm sure I'll be chatting with you in, in about two minutes thank over Instagram. And I hope this was helpful. I hope people like the research as much as we do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this type of episode, which is our first research update episode. If, if you did like it, uh, be sure to share with a friend or maybe tag me in your stories. Um, let, let us know what you think and what kind of research you would want to hear about in the future. Um, cause I do plan on doing more episodes like this, uh, moving down the pipeline. Um, so stay tuned for our next episode and thank you for joining me at Hormonally Yours. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.